Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive in the wonderful history of Chelsea Football Club. My name is Gary Barone and I'm joined as ever by club historian Rick Lanville. Hi Rick. Hello mate, how are you? Not too bad at all. Now Rick, in our recent Fresh Starts episode, we discussed mm. the importance of summer preparations, sometimes yes. better than others, and how helpful a team bonding tour can be. Now, the new coach, Maurizio Positivo, as we like to call him on this podcast, <laughs> and his squad crossed the Atlantic to ensure America is blue as part of the preseason. And we thought we'd look at Chelsea's first ever tour of the United States and Canada back in 1954. Oh, we did. Timely, don't you think? And um, and if that year, 1954, rings listeners' bells, that's because this preseason, uh, although it's postseason, from the season before, but that summer became unique as it led on to our first ever league title success in April 1955, so just a year later. And as we'll hear, there were quite a few incidents and results didn't always go our way, but what actually happened during this four-week jaunt to contribute to the triumph that followed? That's what we've got to find out. Yeah, but what was the context, Rick, of us going on this eight-match tour of North America back in 1950, sorry, May 1954? Mm-hmm. Was it anything to do with the fact that in the previous World Cup, we had that shocking USA PT in England? So were they looking for another upset, you think, against Ted Drake's men? <laughs> well, you mean like uh, when they beat Bentley and the boys of England 1-0 uh, in Barra Argenti? Yes, quite possibly, but... What you have to remember is the American Soccer League um, was in its 10th, just had its 10th season, just been won by the New York Americans. And as you point out, it was a World Cup summer, uh, though the the US had actually failed to qualify for the tournament, which was being held in Switzerland. But perhaps the sports administrators stateside thought they'd have to draw on the appetite from 1950 of work for World Cup soccer, and that would still be strong. So they sort of basically set up a month-long football jamboree in the US and Canada to try and still nurture that support. And one New York newspaper on May the 1st, just before the tournament actually happened, suggested tomorrow marks the start of the greatest soccer season North America has ever known with seven teams from Europe and South America on tour so that gives an idea of the hype that was involved in there and I think what you're looking at particularly if you look at where the venues were because that quote was in a newspaper ahead of the Sunday kickoff started the whole tournament in New York there was a match taking place between Fortuna Dusseldorf and Borussia Dortmund so an all German derby and there was a third German side, Rottweiss Essen. They were invited, along with second division Rio side, Olaria. Or I think it's Olachia. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. And a British contingent of Scotland's Rangers, Plymouth Argyle. I don't know either. And from England's second, from they were from England's second tier, so second division team. And division one, Chelsea had finished eighth. And champions elect, but they didn't know we were champions elect. So. <laughs> They so on the whole, didn't. it was quite an unusual um, selection of teams. Yes. So this was sponsored by the American Soccer League. So mm. why did they choose those teams? Well, you know what? I think they probably got what they could 
afford and the teams that were available. But above all, I think they were trying to interest like expat German, English, Scottish and Brazilian communities who loved the game there and had actually been the backbone of support that made the ASL back then the longest lasting league ever in the region. So it's America's longest lasting league. And so the format for this tour was um, a round robin of overseas uh, visitors, sorry, um, playing all-star local teams and then each other. And uh, the newspapers, of course, really played up the old association and rival with between Chelsea and Rangers, and we ended up playing them three times. Rick, can, is there any chance you can clarify a bit more what we mean by that old association with Rangers? Chelsea was uh, basically known as Little Caledonia uh, back then, and well, in the 30s, to be honest. And we'd always, like from our very earliest days, our first player manager, Jackie Robertson, was the skipper of Rangers. And in fact, uh, while he was recruiting, and we heard before on the pod, while he was recruiting players for Chelsea, he was having to appear for Rangers in cup matches against against Celtic and stuff like that. But we have always had a big contingent of excellent Scottish players up until quite relatively recent, really. So we'd had Andy Wilson, Huey Gallagher, Tommy Walker, and these were fantastic players of their day uh, from Scotland. And, of course, there were several Scots in Ted Drake's squad for the tour. So that's where this comes from, the connection. Little little Caledonia, Chelsea Football Club. Fair enough. Well, thanks for that. We'll be back with more Chelsea history after this short break. Now, this tour, Rick, this came at the end of a half-decent season, really, didn't it? It certainly did. Um, it didn't start off promisingly, but a strong close to the campaign saw Chelsea finish eights. That was our best showing for two decades. Obviously, the next one would be Drake's third season in charge. And when he arrived in 1952, he'd promised he would steer the club to the title in three years. So he'd invested, there was a lot in terms of PR that he had invested in this new season coming up. So in a sense, the tour from the Chelsea perspective was more of a bonding exercise, I guess. Totally. That was exactly what it was for for Drake and for the players. He saw it as a means to build the togetherness that he felt was essential. He really believed in sort of uh, squad chemistry and he would prefer good personalities to to skillful players. And we had a brilliant run the previous season from, we were 21st in November uh, and we finished 8th in April 1954, as, as you mentioned. But now it was sort of time to deliver the goods and he wanted to hone it all down, polish off the relationships between all the players that he'd selected and and um, the squad that he'd taken with him, which included, quite quaintly, a fella called Ray Kitchener, who was Hitchin Town's amateur left winger and leading goal scorer. Now, that's non-league. I mean, that is so non-league, Hitchin Town. <laughs> I don't even... God knows what league they're playing in now. But Kitchener, along with all the players, um, well, he was an amateur, so he had to arrange time off work. <laughs> Poor fella. Um, I hope it was paid leave, because he would have just got expenses when he was away with Chelsea. And 
he worked for the, the British Tabulating Machines of Letchworth. Brilliant. I doubt whether they're still going. And, of course, he had to visit the US Embassy for his visa, and so they could record his fingerprints, so he had to ink his fingerprints. And uh, Ray Kitchener, he actually made a couple of tour appearances, once a sub, once a subbed. And remember, substitutions were illegal in the English game at the time. But he must have been impressed because he signed properly for Chelsea. So Drake must have seen something in him uh, a few months later and made a single first-team appearance. So good on Ray Kitchener. Now, the point about this, why I'm picking out Ray Kitchener, is that this was what Drake was all about. He loved strivers. And he was sending his usual message that he fancied lower league hardworking players sometimes over superstars, although he did like a superstar too. Yeah, uh, fair enough. And I suppose Chelsea had had so many superstars over the years and not got anywhere. So it made sense to look around for alternatives, didn't it? Yes, so exactly. Chelsea at that time then, an equal opportunities employer is Always. good to see. So he takes a 19-strong squad with him. And unlike Plymouth, who had been a naval town, I guess, um, had to enjoy a 12-day <laughs> voyage. Chelsea jetted <laughs> across the Atlantic. How very modern. <laughs> yes, not good for the environment, but um, in the jet age, that's what you did. And the whole squad was insured for £200,000. That doesn't seem like quite very much money nowadays, does it? They were headquartered in New York, a fantastic city, of course, that the club stupidly didn't return to for 58 years until we played a pre-season friendly against Paris Saint-Germain in July 2012. And I really hope that when they're in Manhattan, mid-50s Manhattan, surely a few of them sneaked out, went to a jazz club and caught John Coltrane or Miles Davis or someone playing bebop or, or oh, modal jazz or whatever. I really hope that they did in any case. Yeah, I can see Silla in a beatbox club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to. I wish I'd asked Roy Bentley about that. Anyway, and three of our games were actually played at um, what is there now a long lost stadium, Randall's Island, in Manhattan. One of them games was in Baltimore, another in New Jersey, and two of the three Rangers clashes were actually in Canada, Montreal, and Toronto. So they spread it around a bit. And um, as you'd expect, given how England was at the time, the squad made it known that the hospitality in the US was everywhere absolutely overwhelming. You can imagine the hospitality would have been brilliant. And of course, let's not beat about the bush. Chelsea is, and as a name, is famous in the States, not just because of the bohemian west side district of Manhattan, which is Chelsea, where the Chelsea Hotel is, incidentally named after the Royal Hospital, home of the Chelsea Pensioners. So there's a connection just off the King's Road. But also, uh, we played near to Chelsea, Massachusetts, which um, the venue was actually Fall River in Boston. But very, so we played two matches close to. Our namesakes, Chelsea, Chelsea in Manhattan, Chelsea in Massachusetts. Well, as we're sometimes known to say, Rick, Chelsea here, Chelsea there, <laughs> Chelsea everywhere. <laughs> of course, I do like me some um, Joni Mitchell, Chelsea morning on a match day. I do love to listen to that. Why not? What a beautiful way of starting your day. Now, 
But you know what all this is reminding me of, Rick? My name's Ted Lasso. I've been brought over here to, to, you know, implement my coaching style. Football's football no matter where you play it. You got grass, you got cleats, and you got helmets with masks on them. Football in the States is my specialty, but they have a different kind of football over here. Kick it! Circle them up, have them put on their pads, and let's start playing for real. They're wearing their pads, coach. So the Apple TV comedy Ted Lasso has shone a light on the cultural differences in football and society either side of the Atlantic. But were there any examples of misunderstandings back in 1954, Rick? Oof. Few. For example, the Chelsea contingent found it really amusing that assistant referees in the States ran the line wearing basically uh, baseball umpire gear. You know, the classic black and white striped silk shirt, pantaloon trousers, soft boots and a peaked cap. <laughs> Not the kind of thing you'd expect some of her... Uh, our officials to wear and uh one novelty as well related to that is that in the us at the times they didn't use youngsters to go and retrieve the ball when it went off the pitch and remember chelsea had introduced the ball by concept to english football in 1905 it hadn't got across the atlantic so when the ball went out of play during this tour it was the linesmen as they were called back then who ran and fetched it and before running to retrieve a football, they would, as Roy Bentley described it, Roy Bentley wrote about this, uh, they would hurl their flag dagger-like into the ground at the approximate spot where the ball crossed the line, and that marked the spot for the throw-in. Now, uh, honestly, the number of disputes you see <laughs> even <Yeah>. today about <laughs> encroaching and get back and everything like that, maybe that's a good idea, something we could take from stateside football. But in one instance... I think it was at Fall River. This led to a bit of a scrape for our winger, Eric Parsons, who was went on to be one of the heroes of the title-winning campaign that was to follow. And this was against an, um, the American All-Stars team in Massachusetts. And Roy uh, describes the incident quite nicely in his autobiography, and I'll read from this. Um, it's called Going for Goal, the book. And he wrote, Completely encircling the edge of the Fall River pitch was a grass running track, the lanes of which had once been defined by chalk lines, but the lines were now quite faint. And the outside one had to serve as our touchline. That's the outside one. In other words, the inside running lanes were effectively on the field of play, although faint. And he carries on. None of us could see it very clearly. This is the touchline. But suddenly we realised that the linesman was running down the wrong line altogether. So he was he changed lanes. He was in the wrong lane. Um, another faded one, some eight feet inside the real touchline. And Roy says, I booted the ball out to Eric Parsons, who trapped it in a space, space which was outside the linesman and made for goal. Eric was within the official playing area, of course, but the linesman, seeing him playing some four feet outside him, immediately assumed Eric had run out into touch. So he threw his flag into the white line, which he'd all the time considered to be the right one. Eric took no notice and carried on. So Eric, the rabbit, as he was known, was herring down the line. And the linesman, now completely exasperated, tore after our right winger and, and engaged him in a tackle. Now this I love here because he says, after a bit of clever footwork, Eric tricked his unexpected challenger and went herring on. 
We didn't score a goal from that movement, though we did win the game 6-0, to be fair. But like the crowd, we had a good laugh. Indeed, once he realised his error, the linesman joined in too. That's fantastic. So the assistant referee actually tried to tackle one of our players. Yeah. Let's hope that Anthony Taylor doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. OK, Rick, back to 1954-2. We were there for a month. We played eight matches. So how did we do? Well, we earned rave reviews after winning the first game against Fortuna uh, Dusseldorf 3-2 in New York on the 9th of May. And actually, that match drew the biggest crowd of our time over there, just under 19,000. It wasn't a brilliantly well-attended tour, so it didn't do what the ASL had hoped it would, you know, bring in the numbers. But then a week later, so there were some gaps uh, between these matches. A week later, we lost uh, 1-0 to Rangers in Canada. Then was another five days and before we thrashed uh, newcomers to the ASL, Baltimore Rockets 7-1 at their Westport ground. Now, it's worth remembering that scoreline when you hear what was actually going on in the Chelsea camp. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds interesting, Rick. Please do go on. Well, firstly, um, Baltimore... Baltimore Rockets has had such a great debut season in the ASL that the crown and most valuable player had just been handed to their goalkeeper, a fellow called Cyril Hannaby, who was actually a migrant from Yorkshire, who'd previously kept goal for Wolverhampton and Hull. And we just put seven past him. Exactly. We'd won 7-1 and this Yorkie was in goal for them. Um, but there's much, much more. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a bit weird. Early in the tour... Um, Drake's tourists were going through a bit of a goalkeeping crisis. And as the 1954-55 Chelsea yearbook puts it, uh, this is what they wrote, after only two games, goalkeeper Bill Robertson was rushed to hospital in Baltimore for an appendicitis operation. And although he unfortunately missed most of our travels, he was wonderfully looked after by the Americans. I bet he was. I bet that cost a few quid though, didn't it, Rick? (laughs) Exactly. No NHS, unfortunately. (laughs) Certainly not in the mid-50s. But we dread to think how much that would have set him back. Anyway, the yearbook explained Robertson's indisposition in the the absence of a second goalkeeper. So he only took one goalkeeper out. (laughs) 19 players, one goalkeeper, yeah. (laughs) You're asking for trouble, aren't you? And it caused a problem, of course. And in the first match we were without Bill Robertson, Bobby Smith kept goal. So so to clarify, 7-1 against Baltimore Rockets and Bobby Smith, who stepped in in goal, was normally a striker. Yeah, you can imagine how he felt. Everyone else was scoring and he's having to fetch the ball out of the net at the other end. Um, Smith, for those that don't know, Bobby Smith was a 21-year-old centre-forward who actually signed for Spurs soon after that and became a bit of a Spurs legend. But at the time, in 1954, he was was fresh out of Chelsea Juniors. And to his credit, he did only concede one goal. But um, obviously, Smith was a young man trying to prove his worth to Ted Drake. He didn't, he felt... Underrated, I think. And that was one of the reasons he went to Tottenham. So it seems unfair to keep him between the sticks. And actually, as it turned out, that was the only game he played on the whole tour. But anyway, the 1954-55 yearbook continues. And for the next match, we secured, wait for it, 
Baltimore Rockets, Cyril Hannaby, formerly of Hull City and voted the outstanding player in American football last season. <laughs> so the expat that we just scored seven against. Yes. So good bit of scouting that was. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's right up there with um, us recruiting Ross Turnbull. Remember, we signed him as a backup keeper in 2009, despite putting seven goals past him in two games against Middlesbrough. Yeah, thanks for the memory, Rick. I still <laughs> clearly remember that clearance straight to John Joe Selby in that 4-1 loss at Liverpool. Oh, I know. 2012. But I suppose it's only fair to say that Ross Turnbull has a Champions League winner's medal and we don't. So let's go back to 1954. And what happened next? <laughs> Well, we played what was, up to last season, of course, our only ever fixture against Dortmund. And with Cyril, Cyril Hanna being goal, we were thrashed 6-1. And as the club put it, Hannaby had an unhappy time against Borussia. I think that's classic English understatement, you might say. And we also made history in a bad way. The Washington Journal summed it up by saying Dortmund became the first German football team to beat an English first division football team on American soil. This was also the game that um, poor old Ray Kitchener uh, made his debut. And fortunately, only 7,500 people were there to bear witness. So again, the crowds weren't great. Well, we let in 13 goals in two matches. Not exactly nice one, Cyril, was it? Not nice <laughs> at all. Now, did you keep him on? Did he play for us next season? He didn't play for us the next game. So no, we did not keep him on. Instead, this is what I love about this story. We called in a favour from fellow tourist Plymouth as the yearbook again explained. It says, um, then Plymouth Argyle came to our aid by lending us Bill Short, the Welsh international goalkeeper. And besides helping us out of a tight corner, Short provided, sorry, proved a most excellent companion for the remainder of the tour. So maybe he was the one taken to the Bebop clubs. Anyway, Bill Short actually kept clean sheets against uh, one of these all-star teams at Eastern Seaboard three days after the Dortmund match, and then again uh, against the New Jersey All-Stars at Rogers uh, Stadium in Harrison. And then he acquitted himself well in the beating of Rangers, a revenge match in Toronto. We'll be back with more Chelsea history after this short break. So, Rick, the long and the short of it is that we use four different <laughs> goalkeepers on this North American tour. Only one of them was any good, and he wasn't even one of ours. <laughs> That's about it. And I like the short of it pun. Pretty much, though, Robertson did recover to play a stellar role over the upcoming season. He was, uh, you know, he was a good player in goal for us. And by the way, as part of the goalkeeping arrangement with Plymouth, Chelsea agreed to play a floodlit friendly at their ground, Home Park, in October 1954, um, during which... We felt no compunction whatsoever about putting five past the erstwhile companion Bill Schultz. So we punished him for helping us out. Yeah, but he was a good companion, so he probably took it well. (laughs) Anyway, by this time, we were on the way to being crowned champions for the first time ever. So I suppose we have to say the North American tour of May 1954 was, in fact, a quite brilliant success. I think you have to say that. I think the really bar one performance... The one against Dortmund, where we had the we borrowed the bad goalkeeper. 
Uh, sorry, Cyril. Drake's established players, the core of the squad, Bentley, Stubbs, McNichol, Parsons, Sillett, um, they took their good league form from 54 into that tour, then into pre-season, and ultimately into the brilliant 1954-55 campaign where they won the league. And in the States, they played well, scored goals, and I think they all came together as a unit. And that's what's so important about these things as a bonding exercise. You find the blend, you find the chemistry, you find the companionship, and you understand what your coach wants, what Ted Drake in this instance wanted. And so just a year later, um, Chelsea crowned champions of England for the first time, just as Drake had promised three years earlier. So you have to say an unqualified success. And as it happens this week, the team are setting off for another pre-season in the United States and the mood music from Pochettino's training camp has been very positive, as we noted mm-hmm. last week. Yeah. So do we happen to be visiting any of the old haunts from 69 years ago during the upcoming Premier League summer series? No, sadly, no, we're not going back to any of the same same cities, but um, there are one or two connections to 54 this time around. A bit obscure, some of them, but I'll let you know what they are. We're playing Dortmund. We don't have to borrow a goalkeeper, do we? (laughs) Hopefully not, no. We're playing them on 2nd of August at Soldier Field in Chicago. (laughs) Yeah, Cyril's not available. Elsewhere, it's King's Road Glamour versus Hollywood Stardust. When we face Wrexham, the Welsh team Wrexham, on 19th of July in North Carolina, and then we're playing Brighton at Philadelphia, Newcastle in Atlanta. And then we go on to Maryland for what must be the furthest flung West London derby in history, where we take on Fulham in Maryland. Amazing. And that's on the 30th of July. And then, of course, there's the 2nd of August one at uh, Dortmund. But before we go, before we end this little discussion of 54 and the current tour, I have one final nugget. Bill Short, the goalkeeper we successfully borrowed from Plymouth in 1954. Guess where he was born? Rick, I have absolutely no idea. Well, me old mate, he was born in Wrexham, who are (laughs) our first opponents on this tour. So there you go. Research is the bomb. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, this is serious. If any of our US listeners know anyone who might have been involved in or attended any of Chelsea's matches back in 1954, please get in touch. We'd love to just discuss what it was like to see Chelsea play there and what the matches were like. And, you know, maybe you witnessed that incident with the lino, which would be fantastic. Well, there's no Big Apple this time around, but who knows, maybe we can blow Dortmund away in the Windy City. (laughs) You've been listening to the famous CFC with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Glanville. Now, if you like the show, please subscribe and spread the word. We'll be back soon with a whole load more Tales from Chelsea's History. Come on, you blues. Come on, you blues.